Hello, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alexis Clark, and I'm joined by Steve Sanye. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major health issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Edrisa Sanyang, who has significant experience in the field of public health in the Gambia. Dr. Sanyang, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Can you give a brief background into your career in the field of public health and then also touch on how you partnered with our College of the Public Health as well? I started uh, public health way back in 2001 after completing my higher national diploma in environmental health. So I briefly work in urban areas, you know, focusing on environmental sanitation, childhood immunization, maternal and child health related issues. And then later went to rural Gambia, very remote part of the country, focusing on the same assignments. And, uh, you know, did that for a couple of months to a year and uh, went back and joined the University of the Gambia for an advanced degree. From the completion, I, you know, later joined uh, an international NGO called Child Fund, where I supported a water and sanitation project mainly to rural, deprived, and vulnerable populations. So I did that for a couple of years, both on terms of water provision, as well as um, some educational activities on sanitation and hygiene. Then I later came to University of Iowa, and you know, where I started with a student exchange scholar program and came back for my MPH and, uh, you know, from the MPH, uh, we won an international project involving multiple countries in West Africa, all the 15 West African countries, um, including the Gambia. So I led that project for a couple of years and uh, came back for a doctoral program on injury epidemiology. And that's how the partnership started getting deeper and deeper. While at University of the Gambia, you know, we did work with some MAD program. These are minority health and health disparity projects from the University of Iowa. And we had students from Iowa to Gambia, you know, orienting them onto public health practice in the field. When addressing public health initiatives, why do you think it's critical to have a global mindset opposed to just being country specific? That's that's a very important question. Public health is so diverse and it's so complex. Determinants are very broad and very complex. So you cannot just have one approach to address a public health problem. You need to have multidisciplinary approach, you know, multiple components to address public health problems. And it also need, you know, multiple institutions and countries to address them, especially in the era of global travels, a lot of increased network between countries, between communities, and so on. So focusing on individual countries will not definitely address individual country public health needs. It will it needs a collaborative effort. It needs synchronizing activities, synchronizing programs, transfer of knowledge and skills. Um, that's the only sort of way we can address public health problems. When you're talking about 
the collaborative approaches because it's a very key component of things that communities, you know, in one nation are very similar to communities in another nation, right? They can have similar social determinants of health. They can be impacted by similar issues. How do you ensure that your work has an impact on the communities that you work with, especially if you're part of that community? How do you really drill into that aspect of things? The best approach is to make your interventions or your project as relevant to the needs of the community as is possible. When it comes to the how, it's oftentimes best to do some community participatory projects. Involve the community members in identifying what the needs are. Involve them in addressing those needs. They know their priorities. They know their concerns. So going to that level and design some interventions on project at community level, you know, and uh, provide in supports, you know, because some of them, uh, you know, I from my personal experience, for example, uh, when I was working on the child porn project, the design involved the communities, the implementation also involved the communities, and they come back during our steering committee meetings. Oftentimes, most adverse projects don't involve the beneficiaries. They don't involve beneficiaries in decision-making. But that was what we definitely do away with. We make sure that every community had a representative in the steering committee. They bring their problems to the, community, to the central level. And we make a collective decision as to how we can address those community, those problems. And eventually it worked out very well. The participation was very high. You know, the desired outcomes were definitely had higher impact on the community and improvement in the livelihood. So participation is very key for public health. So you've been in the United States for the last decade. Thinking back to your time um, in education in the Gambia, what what does it look like? What does public health education look like? And what does practice look like there versus the United States? Public health practice, I, I keep saying this and I emphasize it all the time. You know, public health practice in the Gambia or in middle low income country is somehow a bit different. Maybe it's because of the income status. Uh, maybe it's because of um, a lot of different factors. But low middle income countries put a lot of emphasis on public health. And uh, I think they practice it in the most appropriate way. That's my opinion. In the sense that the Gambia, for example, institutionalized a lot of different approaches like community participatory approach, the PRA, uh, or sometimes they call it community appraisal systems. Eventually what, what, they, what, what happens at that level is uh, the community members identify what the needs are. But within that, you know, we also have a multidisciplinary approach team where you have different professionals from different backgrounds come together to address a common public health problem. The weakness to that effect is, you know, you have that multidisciplinary approach at the intervention point level, but you don't have it at policy level. And this is where we have a huge uh, limitation. And, uh, you know, so long, you know, developing countries kind of focus on those things definitely to address some of the needs. In the United States, we do have some decent public health approaches, you know, but most of the time, from my experience, uh, being in this country for about 10 years, it's not community intensive approach. 
so that is kind of where we have some of those differences coming in. When you're looking at how those differences impact the response to public health, what do you see as the Gambia's greatest public health need? You, you talked a little bit about how your country is more oriented towards focusing on public health over the policy tendencies of the United States. Where do you see those needs really starting from? Good question. Gambia has focused a lot on infectious disease. And this is you know, the same for most low middle income countries. But if you look at the epidemiological trends, you know, the disease pattern is definitely changing. To my mind, I could be biased because of you know, my research, my training, but to my mind, and in fact, this is backed by data, our major concern should focus on NCDs, non-communicable diseases, but specifically the cancers, but still more specifically road traffic. 90% of all road traffic deaths around the world affect low middle income countries. The Gambia, for example, is the fourth country in West Africa after Liberia, Guinea-Bissau, and Burkina Faso with high road traffic related mortality. And if you compare Gambia to those countries, we are just a tiny bit. Gambia is just a little over 2 million people. So literally, you know, um, if you compare, you know, with the rest of the countries around the world, we are 17. So that is very scary for that small, tiny country. You know, we have improved road infrastructure, that's correct. But, you know, the deaths that are associated with road traffic is definitely alarming. And uh, nationally, you know, recently in the social media, you can feel that the country is definitely feeling this and they are putting up strategies to address some of these concerns because it, it has multiple effects, effects on disability, you know, not just that, because most of the time the victims are vulnerable road users like pedestrians, bicyclists, you know, even children going to school or even breadwinners. And, you know, we believe it's going to, on a long term, drive the poverty levels very high for the country. The sad part about it is all those planning efforts should be backed by data. And this is what we definitely lack in the Gambia. There is a you know, very good data system collecting data on infectious diseases, but we don't have that for road traffic or similar NCDs um, in the country. With the road traffic side of things, I'm thinking about here where You've got electricity, you've got that road infrastructure. I'm not familiar, unfortunately, with the exact uh, situation with the United States, traffic incidents and death. But for the Gambia, what are the areas that need investment and that policy might be missing, that the surveillance might be missing? What are some key actionable solutions that need to be taken? Yeah, the key actionable solutions are first overhauling of our national road traffic laws, you know, because they were created before independence, you know, most of them, except the seatbelt law, child restraint law, and, uh, you know, cell phone use law. With the exception of those three, most were created in the 50s and 60s. Uh, That need to be rebuilt thoroughly, and we need to update those laws. Feeding is a major contributing factor, about 80% of you know, road traffic crisis is associated with speeding, vehicle conditions. So a lot of different things need to be critically rebuilt 
and uh, government to come up with appropriate laws and policies to create a very good structure that would definitely help curb the road traffic incident. The way licensings are done is terrible. It's definitely terrible. You can be in your home so long you have money. You can call somebody that you need a driver's license without doing any computer-based tests to show your competencies, without doing any road tests to show your competencies, and you get your driver's license the following day and you are on the road driving. You don't even know how to drive. Most of the classes are associated with drivers like that. And there is nothing like point-based system where if you kind of default or cause errors during driving, you know, police would you know, apprehend you and suspend your lancing or something like that. Now, as a matter of fact, it's so different from the United States uh, because we don't have police as part of the traffic. We have police in specific locations to check for some of these driver violation-related issues. And drivers would fix their demeanors or whatever. They would make sure that when they get into a police checkpoint, they do things that are in accordance with the law. And once they pass the police checkpoint, they just do anything really nearly. And eventually, you know, most of those result in fatal crashes. So there are a lot of different things to, to, to fix in the country. I currently have an undergraduate student working with me on a policy brief, and we plan on going to the Gambia in the summer to talk to the lawmakers and see specifically, you know, what our recommendations are what they need to prioritize to address road traffic problems in the Gambia. With addressing those road problems in the Gambia, you had mentioned the issues of infrastructure and going on from there to the police staffing situation. Beyond those two areas, I'm thinking about the awareness and who is getting into these accidents. Are, are the demographics of these individuals known? Is it, is it lower income individuals or is it younger folks who just want to go for a ride? What, what does this look like when it's folks who are trying to get uh, the licenses that you're talking about? Yeah, in terms of the demographic, most, most of the victims are young people, mostly between the age of 15 and 45 years. And these are the productive workforce of the society. Um, I recently conducted a study, um, completed a data collection comparing Gambia and Tanzania in terms of how youths perceive road traffic classes um, in those countries. And I'm working on, you know, developing manuscripts out of those, you know, but these are the exact studies. Um, I interviewed police and, you know, it's so interesting seeing the police perspective, how youths perceive risk how they go about driving in the motorways. And if you talk to the youths, it's also very interesting in terms of their perspective, how the police approach safety on the road. And, and, and it's, it's, it's all very interesting out there. And definitely we need to come together, that's my thought, as a country to look at those potholes and definitely come up with appropriate strategies to address them in the country. When you're looking at these issues as a whole, is there something that stands out to you with, with road traffic safety that everyone should know about in the Gambia? Is there, is there a specific pressing issue that folks really need to be aware of back home? Yes. To my mind, folks need to know that speeding kills they need to know that speeding definitely kills. They need to know that you can wake up at the start of your day 
and become disabled a few hours later. And when you are disabled, you know, we don't have those safety nets in the country. And eventually what happens is you become a burden on the family. In the sense that if a, most of the time, again, you know, for a lot of our classes, you know, it's not just the youths, but the, you know, professional groups who are breadwinners of families. So if you die, yeah, you die. But if you get disability, you become a total burden on the family because you don't have, you know, support systems where government can take care of you. Instead, if you're, you are working, your wife is working, kids are going to school, you, you, you are a victim of your traffic crisis, what happens is you eventually home and your wife would also leave work and support you at home. So that increased poverty level. So people need to know all these things and they need to keep calculating all these things. Distraction is a major problem. Cell phone use is so high and we believe that it is definitely distracting a lot of drivers. A lot of other things, drug use is, is also super common. And we need to address them. We need to definitely address them. The quality of the vehicles is, you know, is another thing. Uh, most of the time they are used vehicles, you know, 20, 40 years old, you know, and they still do a lot of things to maintain them, but eventually, you know, they can easily fail. And all those things are contributing factors to the traffic crisis in the country. So people need to know these things. People need to ask questions before they join public transportation system. Those things are, are important. But overall, the outcome is what people need to understand. You know, in, if you are involved in a class, what are the likely outcomes? I tested it a couple of times, you know, during lectures, during meetings, to ask a whole group who in that group has a family or a neighbor never involved in a class. You will never see anyone. So it is a national problem. So when we are reflecting on the opportunities that you've had so far in the field of public health, what's one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about? Yeah, initially I thought communities I work for, communities I serve, know very little about public health. Um, But I was definitely wrong. Um, Gambia, for example, had a lot of different approaches to educating the community. And they know a lot. For over the years, radio communication was the best way that communities were educated on public health issues. Then it later transitioned. You know, we had what we call the Kanyalang. You know, these are individuals, groups that sing traditional songs and they use some of those things to communicate special messages to the communities. I think what we are lacking, I'm trying digressing a bit because I want to give some context to this. You know, what we are lacking now is adjusting our communication approaches to ensure that we use modern technologies because those modern technologies are already being infiltrated by false information. Like Think about Facebook, think about WhatsApp. There are a lot of WhatsApp groups all over. And, you know, some false information are being transmitted to the communities. And over time, my fear is for the new generation, the foundation that was built in educating the community would definitely fade away. So I think the public practitioners in Gambia, if they are listening to me, is to change the strategy. 
you know, move on, use the modern tools. Otherwise, the bad information is leading you in using those modern tools. And eventually, we would find it very difficult to cherish, to have back the public health breakthroughs we had. So coming back to the specific question um, you asked about, when I was with the Child Fund Project, you know, I was educating people in terms of alternative method if you don't have you know, soap to do hand, hand sanitizing or hand cleaning. You know, you can use some local products um, like ours, for example. Um, I thought that was used to the community. And there was one silent young lady at the corner whispered that you can use us. That was shocking to me. So sometimes you underestimate what the communities know in your public health intervention, you know, but involving them, they would bring a whole lot of experience on the table and they could relate, you know, your, the interventions that you're going to design together with them eventually to improve their, uh, their health and well-being. I think those are very good key points, especially now when, rightly so, we are concerned with misinformation and incorporating communities, especially younger communities, into how those messages are delivered and making sure it's a successful delivery and reaching folks to make them aware of best public health practices and accurate ones too. And so I think those are very good points to tie in together, especially for public health practitioners everywhere is kind of not treating it like it's a marketing strategy necessarily, but product testing, right? We're trying to test out this message of how do we protect members in our community and having folks from different backgrounds is very essential, whether they're young, they're old, they're experienced with technology or they're not. Having those diverse experiences is critical. And I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. I want to thank you for the opportunity to interview you today and really appreciate you coming on the show and giving us your insights. Thank you so much, Steve. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for our episode this week. Major thanks to Dr. Edrisa Sanyang for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted and written by Alexis Clark and Steve Linsanye. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Linsanye. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.